Jesus' ministry is taking off like a rocket. And there's a, a breathlessness, a speed in Mark's gospel that you don't see anywhere else in the New Testament. In just 28 verses of Mark chapter 1, Jesus has preached, been baptized, been tempted, resisted temptation, called disciples to follow him, and now he's gone to Capernaum. There, he's besieged by the sick and distressed in the synagogue. He goes to preach and he heals a man. He's recognized by demons he's casting out who recognize that he's the Holy One of God, whereas people round about him think that he is merely a miracle worker. He's almost hunted and hounded by first the people and then his disciples. No wonder he tries to go quietly away and pray, but there's no rest for the wicked, they say, and there certainly doesn't seem any rest for the Son of God either. So, by the time you reach verse 29 in Mark chapter 1, it's time for a rest, isn't it? Not a bit of it. Our reading from Mark this morning that Tony's just read for us continues this kind of breathless, pacey ministry of Jesus. Jesus leaves the synagogue where he's been preaching and healing and goes to Simon Peter and his brothers Andrew's house where they can all relax, put their feet up, the end of a busy day, have a bite to eat, chew the fat, talk over the day. No. Instead, Peter's mother-in-law is ill and Jesus raises her up. The word quite literally means to be lifted bodily. And she's immediately better and begins to prepare and serve a meal. So they have the meal and after dinner, just you know, like you feel when you've had a good meal, you think, now's the time. Put news at 10 on, just chill out. It's time to relax now. No. Sundown marks the end of the Sabbath and its rules about no travel and no work come to an end as well. So the townspeople besiege Peter's house, bringing all their sick and possessed souls and basically set up a camp outside the back door. And Jesus clearly comes outside and heals many folk brought to him and casts out demons and evil spirits from many others. We've no idea at all how long this went on. But eventually it ended and presumably the crowds went away to their beds. And Jesus comes back into the house of Peter. So now it's time. Now it's time to rest and sleep and recuperate. I can't wait to get into bed. No, well, sort of no. Verse 35 suggests that before dawn, same phrase that you use on Easter Day of the women in John's Gospel. Commentators suggest that means between three o'clock and five o'clock in the morning. Jesus steals away from Simon's house to a deserted place where he prays. And Keen has already talked about that. At last, poor, tired Jesus has some peace and quiet. No. While he's praying, Simon and some others have noticed that he's missing from the house and they've been searching for him. And the Greek word used here by Mark for searching is katadeoxin, which means to be pursued or even hunted like you would hunt somebody who's gone missing and you need to recapture them. 
Why are they searching for him so eagerly? Because, they tell him when they find him, everyone is looking for you. The Greek word for their looking isn't katadioxian, but zetusin, which means, and this is really, this is where the Bible words in the are really, really subtle and they lead you on. There could be another sermon in this some other time. But the word zetusin doesn't mean to be hunted like an animal. It means we had something and we've lost it and now we know we need to find it again. See how sometimes a word gives you another layer of meaning that in English it just doesn't quite. The disciples of Jesus say to him, so, so can you come back? No, says Jesus, now I need a rest. I've done enough preaching and healing and exercising, that's E-X-O-R, not E-X-E-R. Just, just leave me alone here, just go away all of you. No. Rather it's, well we need to go to other people, to other places where I'll preach and I'll teach and I'll heal. And the last verse of this passage, which is the passage for today, goes, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee doing these things. Well, what might be the words and the teachings of Scripture that God wants to just highlight for us today? First, we might note what Jesus spends a good deal of his life actually doing. It's proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom and healing and mending broken people. Physically, psychologically, and spiritually broken. And, and we might this morning compare our activity with his activity. We may not have the gift of preaching or we may not count ourselves a healer or a restorer in any kind of technical sense. We might say, I'm not trained for that, or we might use the New Testament language of that's not my gift. But nevertheless, to what extent are we devoted in our lives to proclaiming the kingdom of God and to mending broken people? when we're engaged in a multitude of conversations this coming week, at home or at work or with relatives or with friends or neighbors, to what extent, if somebody was keeping a diary of our breathless actions, would it display that we're proclaiming grace and healing wounds? How like Jesus' life are our lives. Second, and closely related, we might read that passage and note, therefore, how Jesus uses his time, what he fills his days with, what his stewardship of time is, if you like. In the synagogue on the Sabbath, healing in the afternoon, eating meals with others, more healings, prayers early in the morning, planning his days focused on doing what God has called him to do. So many of us seem to chase our tails all the time. I remember one preacher starting a very effective sermon by saying that he 
got up and dashed, uh, went into town shopping and ran towards the supermarket with one eye on his clock watch. And uh, he had to wait 11 seconds for the whirling door in Asda to come round to get in. And as he went in, he thought, I'm going to be chasing myself all day long now. For 11 seconds. Many of us seem to chase our tails. That doesn't mean, though, that we're always using our time well. Some of us just waste time. Some of us fail to prioritize and do whatever's in front of us and then find after you've done a lot, you've still got the really important thing to do that you were meant to do but you've not done. Some of us put off sometimes permanently what we really don't want to do. There's always something that you can find so as not to do that. And some of us spend our time unwisely or profitlessly or even pathetically. How like Jesus' life are our lives? Jesus, who is so busy but never seems to be rushed somehow. The narrative is rushed, but the subject of the narrative seems to peaceably and chilled outly sort of go through it all and meet it all. Somehow Jesus is always able to deal with issues he encounters as he travels along, never too busy to heal, never too busy to pray, and then you take a step back and say, how does he do it? Well, you say, he's young. He's only 30. You've got endless energy when you're 30. And he's the son of God. He's got supernatural powers. Of course he can do it. Don't expect me to do it. It's true, we've all got different levels of stamina. But the question remains, even when you've said all that, how closely do we model ourselves on the way Jesus lives his life? Are we good imitators of him or poor imitators of him? And third, we might note the traits and characteristics that we see in Jesus in a passage like Mark's Gospel. Look, for instance, at the sense of authority he has. The decisive, effective, simple and calm way with which he talks to people in a multitude of different contexts. Note his compassion, which moves him to give himself generously to people from every walk of life. Note his humility, Spending time in prayer seeking God's will and seeking God's strength because he knows, even Jesus knows, that without God, he cannot. And note his vision, refusing to inhabit the accolades of the crowd, refusing to believe that he's actually the miracle worker that they all think he is, refusing to inhabit the narrative Refusing to comply with the pressings of his disciples, but keeping his focus faithfully on the mission. Faithfully being obedient to what God's called him to be. Let me tell you, any person, you, me, any congregation, us, we, could do much worse than note and copy 
the things Jesus does, the way Jesus uses his time, and the characteristics that we see in his life. One of the greatest Christian books ever written was by a German monk who lived most of his life in Holland. No, not Martin Luther, but a person called Thomas Akempis who lived about 70, 80 years before Martin Luther. The book written in late medieval times was titled The Imitation of Christ. And it's still a book some 570 years since it was first penned as a series of little articles originally. It's still a book that every follower of Christ should try and read throughout their lives. One of the memorable things that's written in The Imitation of Christ, and it's full of quotes, but one of them I like, particularly for this morning, is this. At the day of judgment, wrote Akempis, we shall not be asked what we have read, but rather what we have done. Isn't it, uh, when I first read that, I thought, no, he's surely, surely wrong there. And then I, I think of the angel talking in the book of Revelation about the end times and talking to the churches. And one of the churches, I think it's Laodicea, where he is wanting to, the spirit is wanting to spew them out of his mouth because they're neither hot nor cold. When the spirit is speaking to them, it says, for I know your deeds. He doesn't say, I know whether you're orthodox or not, or I know whether you've got the right doctrine of atonement. He just looks at this church and says, I know your deeds. And I think to myself, gosh, perhaps Akempis is right. He wasn't saying, Thomas Akempis, he wasn't saying that we shouldn't read or study, but that how Christians lived their lives was key to matters of faith and salvation. A couple of hundred years later than Akempis lived, in a long era of history that we refer to sort of generically as the Enlightenment, scholars of religion have noted that the nature of Christian believing changed over that long period of time. Increasingly, and right down to today, we see this just today, to be a Christian, to regard yourselves as a Christian, became more and more and more associated with what you stated you believed. It was the era when all sorts of catechisms were written, where you posed a question and you gave an answer. Or fast forward even to the time when I myself became a Christian, and don't mishear this at this point, I'm not critical of this. I'm arguing that this of itself is insufficient. But when I became a Christian, the night at the age of 17, I made a conscious decision to follow Jesus Christ. What happened to me was what happened to hundreds of different people, thousands. I was taken at the end of the service and I was taken over to a, a little side area like we are going to offer prayer for people at the end of our service today. And somebody kindly and gently took me through a book. It happened to be a book called Journey into Life by Norman Warren. 
And at the end of that, they said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I said, I do. And it was a marvelous, essential happening. And then the person said to me, and I didn't know it then, but I know it now, a classical enlightenment statement. He said to me, you are now a Christian. And he said that on the basis that I said, I believe this and I believe that and I believe the other. Because by the time we reached the late enlightenment, what you say you believe, almost like a tick box, orthodoxy, is what defines you as a Christian. But go back two or three hundred years before the Enlightenment, a hundred years, 150, where you get the Kempis. And then it is, at the Day of Judgment, we shall not be asked what we've read, if you like, what we say we believe, but what we've done. Was I wrong when the last three weeks, were we wrong when the last three or four weeks, Tony and I have semi-consciously preached sermons urging each of us early in a new year to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Was I wrong? Not at all. For those of you who have not made such decisions, both historically and contemporarily, to remain a follower of Jesus, listen to my words, it's important. But when I was a student, and I had posters on my wall in my theological college, one of them was a very famous one that many of you will have heard before. It said, if you were arrested because you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You see, a Kempis and St. Mark posed the $64,000 question. And the questions are the main part of this sermon this morning. What, they ask us, is a person who believes in Jesus Christ and say, as Savior and Lord like? And the answer they give is they are people who are like Jesus. What, they ask, does it mean to believe and follow Jesus? And they answer like this, to follow Jesus is to do the things he did. At the day of judgment, we shall not be asked what we have read, but what we've done. So in their own way, Thomas Akempis, St. Mark, and all the other gospel writers urge believers to be followers who are imitators of Christ. We visited our grandson in the last 36 hours. We haven't seen him since before Christmas. My has changed. Gosh, he's a weight now. Poor old granddad with his bad foot. 
But he's just reached that age where you can see him watching you. And yesterday, while mum and dad were out, and just he and I were sat in the lounge waiting for a cup of tea to come. It's good, isn't it, being a granddad? <laughs> Ernie sat on the floor like that, and I'm looking at Ernie, and Ernie's looking at me, and I go, for the purposes of the CD, I have just made a goldfish movement with my mouth. And he looked at me a little, for a little while, and I said to him out loud, yes, your granddad is very stupid, Ernie. And then I went again. And he looked at me again, and he went. He could just as surely pick up everything bad that I do. Because parenting, grandparenting, isn't a million miles away from what Thomas Akempis and St. Mark and everybody are saying to us. They're saying, be copycats. When you see in Jesus something that wins the soul and changes the world, copy it. When Helen and I were in Malaysia last summer in Kuala Lumpur, I took her to Chinatown. If you've ever been to Kuala Lumpur, you'll know Chinatown. It's where you can get any knocked off thing in the world in about a mile of streets. I remember the first time I went to, uh, to KL back in 2000 and I brought back about eight or nine Rolex watches. They cost me about 12 quid each, and I bought them from a market store. I always remember, because I gave one to my dad. It was even then in his sort of 80s, early 80s. And my dad liked watches. And I gave him this, and he unlocked it, and he saw the name on it, and he looked at me. He said, where have you got this from? I said, Dad, it's not real. <laughs> I said, just remember where I've been. And he needed a reassurance, bless him, that it wasn't real before he'd take it. <laughs> this past summer, it wasn't Rolex watches, but things like designer bags we, well, no, not exactly we, Helen was interested in. And one stallholder in Chinatown pushed some Kath Kitson bags towards Helen and said, and I kid you not, proudly, you look, missus, you look, these are the best genuine fakes in Malaysia. <laughs> they were copies. They weren't real. They didn't stand very close inspection. And as I seem to recall, every Rolex watch I brought back was broken in two years. Including the one I gave my dad. But, and this is the crucial difference, in imitating Christ, in copying him, it doesn't mean that we are not real. Because whenever we begin to take seriously being copycats of Jesus Christ our Lord, 
imitators of him, something amazing happens. Christ enters our life and begins to live out his life through us. The Holy Spirit fills us and says to us, this is great. Let's imitate him together. You following him and me in you. That's why the ministry of exorcism in one sense was so important to Jesus. Cast out what resists following and fill it with what enables imitation. So we've got no excuse. Just when we say, just when you say, just when you listen to Martin preaching again for the third week in succession, you poor souls. You say, I can't do that. Tell that to the Holy Spirit who says to you, yes, you can, I'll help you. Not salespeople of an enlightenment TV evangelist Jesus. Just free samples, walking models of what there is of God in Jesus Christ. So, as I draw to a close, how's your imitating going? Poor copies or striving to be real copycats. And if you're not content with your copying, what are you going to do about it before you leave this church this morning when the promise of the Holy Spirit is offered once again? Amen.